This morning we're going to be finishing up uh, our study in Revelation about the churches. This is the last time we're going to be talking at least specifically about what Jesus said to the churches of the last days. As we'll see in the next chapter, um, we're going to move into heaven and we're going to get on our way with the, with the great, uh, the, <laughs> the last days in the great tribulation. Uh, but this morning, as we look at Revelation uh, chapter 3, verses 14 through 22, we're going to look at the last church, uh, the lukewarm church, Laodicea. Um, and the title of the message is Be Zealous and Repent. Be Zealous and Repent. I thought earlier I was going to name it something else based on another verse in here, but as I got through it, it was clear that this is the message of God to that church to be zealous and repent, and we'll look at that in detail. But we saw that John, the Apostle John, had been exiled to the island of Patmos, that he had seen uh, Jesus revealed in glory. It wasn't like the Mount of Transfiguration where he was just bright and shining and God spoke and Moses and Elijah were there. But he saw Jesus flaming, eyes of fire, um, feet of uh, burnished brass, this powerful figure, this person who we all would have fallen down dead and seen. Uh, John saw and Jesus said, do not be afraid. He had a message for the church. And you see that in that uh, vision, he saw uh, Jesus walking among uh, seven lampstands. He had seven stars in his hands. Those seven lampstands were the seven churches, um, seven being a number of completion. Uh, if we remember the scripture says, Paul says, uh, you know, uh, that there is, there shouldn't be any division, that there shouldn't be anyone who's a, a Paul or Apollos, that we're all saved, right? That even denominations in a sense, aren't recognized necessarily in heaven. That these seven churches uh, may speak to certain denominations, and one denomination or another may uh, fill out the characteristics a little more clearly, a little more closely, but that the church is not meant to be divided. That this seven here is not a signification that division is important to the church, but just that there are, in a sense, the church in itself is perfect as a whole, but that it has seven aspects to it. Uh, in the same way, there were seven spirits of God. It's not seven Holy Spirits. It was a, a perfect picture of God. But I think you know, a thing also that we can compare it to is Israel. That there was one nation of Israel, but there were 12 tribes of Israel. And I believe the church uh, is something very similar to that, to where there's one church, but in a sense, there's seven tribes. There's seven churches, seven church ages. You know, Israel was God's people and is God's people. They're his nation. And Jesus is their king, but the church is God's body, the scripture says. The scripture never says that Israel is his body, it says it's his people, his nation. And the church is never his nation, it's Jesus' body. And who is the head of our body? Jesus. Just like the nation has a king, the body has a head. And like with many things in scripture in life, there really is an overlap here because as we, we take scripture in its entirety, the Gentiles are grafted in, that those of us who are not Jewish and not uh, Israeli and not Hebrew by birth or religion or nationality can, be a, are, uh, can become a part of God's people when we accept Jesus as our Messiah. We are grafted in. We are not greater, but we are grafted in. Uh, that plant term where you take part of a plant and hook it up to another one and tie it together that they become one plant and bear new fruit. But also on the flip side of that, the Jews were meant to embrace this Messiah, this king, not just of their nation, 
but of their salvation, so that they would too be his people and his body. But unfortunately, as we see just with the nation of Israel going astray, so has God's church. Just as some tribes were set apart and some tribes got things right and some didn't and the Israel nations, the Israel, uh, excuse me, the nation of Israel split, so the church has through history. There have been splits in church history. There have been splits probably in a church that you may have come from. But know that God desires a unified church, a unified church with a unified nation of Israel coming to accept him as their king and savior. But that unification should not come with a cost of holiness or a cost of um, hanging on to the things that are right. There are things that need to be hung on to that can't be discarded in the name of unification. In fact, it should be the other way that, you know, as we have one Father, one Spirit, one God of all, that we need to recognize that and in that light, get rid of the things that would divide us from Him uh, and each other uh, that aren't explicitly outlined in Scripture. But remember, uh, there were the messages to the church. The first one we looked at was Ephesus, so the loveless church. Uh, Revelation 2.5 says, Remember, therefore, where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. For this church had lost its love and had to repent. There was a persecuted church, Smyrna. And Jesus said, Do not fear any of these things. Be faithful until death, and I'll give you the crown of life that they were going to be tested. There was a compromising church, Pergamos. Jesus told them, repent, or else I will come to you quickly. Just the same thing as Ephesus, right? And he said, I will fight against them with a sword in my mouth. That their word, they had compromised the word of God, and the word of God was what was going to uh, come against them. And as a church, they should be wielding the, the word of God and not receiving the cutting end of it, so to speak. But God is faithful to do that, even if they are against them. Uh, the corrupt church, Thyatira, says, Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her in a great tribulation, lest they repent of their deeds. That the things that the, this church is doing, they had hung on to some false doctrine. They had uh, done some good things, but the thing that uh, reached heaven first was their spiritual adultery. That they had mixed spiritual things in that should not be involved in the church, and uh, it was a sign of that they were sick from it. In a sense, they had a spiritual STD that they were sick and they needed to repent. The dead church in Sardis uh, says, Be watchful, strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. I have not found your works perfect before God. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life. There's some deep theological things in these letters to the churches. But Jesus says, I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels that this church was about to die. Jesus said, your works are dead. The things you do have nothing to do with me. You guys are going to cease from even living. The church is supposed to be alive, supposed to be resurrected. And he's saying, you guys are about to die. You're on a sickbed. Repent. So not a lot of good things about the church. We see, you know, I would say that the world, when it criticizes the church, is probably right a lot of the time. The faith, and that's myself included, faithful church, Philadelphia, says, because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. That this church, faithful church, had no correction, had no rebuke, that they were doing everything right. In fact, the world probably rebuked them. The other churches might even rebuke them for being weak. 
but that's something that God commended them for, that you guys trust me and trust me alone. And today we're going to look at a church, a lukewarm church in Laodicea, that thinks they're strong, that thinks they have it all together, and Jesus doesn't have anything good to say about them in their current state. And don't get me wrong, I don't mean to come down on the church. It's God's church. When God has a harsh word for us as his church, as his body, we should listen. And when we speak to the rest of the church, we should not be too harsh. We should be loving. Even if we have to say hard things, we say them with the intent of bringing about some sort of actual repentance and change. If we remember that these are seven actual churches around the year 8100, that there were seven churches in these seven cities that actually had people in them, that actually had pastors, that had interacted with the apostles or were founded by the apostles, that they were connected. But the, uh, these letters to the churches uh, and these types of churches also span seven church ages throughout the past 2,000 years, that uh, each of these can kind of be umbrellaed over different areas in history, and this is how the church at large was acting. Maybe there were faithful churches and bodies during those time periods, and there were probably different types, but overall that's what would characterize that church age. And I believe even today these might characterize churches in a spiritual way, that even you could have seven churches from the same denomination, and one might be like Smyrna, one might be like Pergamos, one might be like Laodicea, even though they have the same name on the board, they have the same tenets uh, in their paperwork, but spiritually they're behaving in different ways. Um, and I think that that's why at the end of every, one, every word to each church, it says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That we're meant to hear all of these. That's an instruction as a call uh, that we can't just self-identify. A lot of us, we want to say, oh, yeah, we're the Philadelphian church. We're the brotherly love church. We do everything right. God has got nothing against us. I would slow down and really consider. I'd rather say, you know what? I don't know what church I am, but I know the church I want to be. Because if we're saying and we're patting ourselves on the back that we've got everything right, Maybe we're missing the mark. Maybe we need to slow down and listen. God, what would you say to us as your church today? Not just our denomination, not just our local fellowship, but us as your body, as your people. What would you say to us? And God, we do pray that this morning that you would bring about revival. You would bring a fire and a zealous uh, love for you in our hearts that we would not be compromising and we would be found faithful. God, that your church all over would become the Philadelphian church uh, incense uh, or the church uh, that's persecuted that does the right thing even when they're persecuted God but uh, God whatever the things are that are right or wrong about the churches that we go to and uh, our friends are in God draw them near to you that they would not miss the head uh, the leader uh, God we would hear you knocking and let you in God that you would be at home and welcome in our praise and our hearts and our fellowship and especially uh, when we gather together in Jesus name amen but one thing uh, before we get into the passage for today, I want to look at is another passage in 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 8. And I believe we've kind of touched on this, but it's called the falling away. Uh, it might be referred to as the great falling away or it's the falling away. And first, uh, sorry, 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 8 says, Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or word or by letter, 
as is from us, as though the day of Christ had come. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. And the man of sin is real. Paul is saying, guys, Jesus hasn't come back yet. The end hasn't happened. The falling away is going to happen first. And then the Antichrist is going to be revealed, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God. He's describing what's going to happen in the last days. The temple is going to be rebuilt. Antichrist is going to sit there, as we'll see. Showing himself that he is God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains, uppercase H, the Holy Spirit restrains, will do so until the Holy Spirit, he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy the brightness of his coming. And I want to focus on two things, the falling away and the restraining one. That the falling away has to happen for this person to be revealed. And also the Holy Spirit has to stop restraining, has to be taken away from influence. And the first thing about the falling away, and I, I don't think that the Holy Spirit is removed. I feel like the falling away happens when the Holy Spirit's presence is still here, that the falling away happens as we reject the Holy Spirit. And when the rejection is complete, the Holy Spirit says, okay, I'm going to go now and I'm removed. I'm going to let you have your way. I'm going to let you do what you want to do because I love you and I'm not going to force you. And I'm not going to make you anymore because globally your hearts are, are too hard. And now the, the, the judgment has to come. And this word uh, for falling away is actually describes a rebellion, a departure. Uh, and even last night, my wife and I were watching some video, a part of a couple of videos of a podcast of two guys who were involved in ministry in college and were, grew up in the church. But now they, they don't, I don't know all the details because there's some more videos to watch on it, but I've known it for years. They've fallen away and one more so than the other, I think. I think one looks more fondly on it than the others than the other does but man at first my heart was kind of hard and kind of judgmental and then uh, as the Lord began to work on me it really kind of broke my heart like they really gained the whole world but they've lost their soul that in some instance they must have been up on a high precipice and God doesn't make anyone serve him if you don't want to serve him he's not going to force you so I can't be judgmental like how come you're not serving him but like you could have had more. And they describe circumstances that, again, I'm not God. I don't know their hearts. I don't know everything. You know, maybe they were trying to do the right thing then. I don't know. But, and they think they're in the right place now. Obviously, that's why they're where they are. They, they believe they made the right choices, but they departed. They, they, and there's still time. There's still time. But I've heard of uh, plenty of worship pastors and quote-unquote Christian bands and performers over the years that they had some good stuff and they were using ministry but then all of a sudden they would either fall away they would turn around they would just stop and go back to their old ways or they would even worse than that they would kind of recant and say you know what we don't believe that anymore that's not really what god is like and yet they still claim to be in some authority i almost you know like we're gonna to see today about being warm jesus would rather that they would just turn away and go back to their old ways and be cold again that he could reach them as opposed to those who just just lukewarm. Just kind of, yeah, I don't believe that anymore, but I still do the church thing. And 
Uh, you know, I still I have my belief, but my belief is trumps what the scripture teaches. Pastors and other people as well. There's apostasy, turning away from the faith to where it's even hard to find a church that teaches the Bible for what the Bible teaches. It's like, what is the point? Why go? I mean, you want to go see a mediocre movie? No, you want to go see a movie that's awesome. And sometimes you'll watch a movie that's really bad just to kind of watch a train wreck. But a movie that's kind of, you know, two and a half stars, you're going to skip it. You're not going to pay for it. Maybe when it's on TV. So why do we go to a church like that? Why are we content in a faith like that? But this apostasy and this even worldwide rebellion of those who aren't even Christians, and sadly even in the church, I believe, it's open rebellion against God, is going to happen before the rapture, I believe. Because there's still going to be a remnant of a believing church that's not going to rebel, that's not going to be uh, uh, apostate, but they're going to be apostolic. And God's going to say, okay, I'm leaving, and I'm taking you with me. And we're going to see that in the next chapter. Not everyone would agree with me in this position, and I wouldn't agree with them either. And I could say, you know what? This is what I believe is the heart of God based on what the Scripture says. I can listen to your arguments, and I'd be open to hearing other arguments about it. But I'm pretty convinced that this is how it's going to work. It makes sense. Now, I could be wrong. I'm open to that. You know, part of me is like, you know, I, I don't know how bad it's going to get before the tribulation, so I kind of want to be prepared for that. But I think it's the simplest answer. You know, it's like, all right, we're, we're going to go. You know, this place is getting wild, so we're going to pack up our family and go someplace where we're supposed to be. And that's kind of what God does with his church. In these last days, this place is not his home anymore. It's open, outright rebellion. Stinks to high heaven. They want nothing to do with God or his church. And they want nothing to do with his people. All right, so the time has come for a judgment to happen. Let's look at a couple things about the Holy Spirit before we get into uh, Revelation 3. In John 16, 7 and verses 9 through 11, it says, Nevertheless, Jesus says, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. Jesus saying, look, I'm, I'm going back to heaven, but don't worry. I'm not going to leave you alone as orphans. I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. He's going to come, and he's going to be with you always. I can only be with a couple of you guys at a time, and i got to go over here, got over there. Even when I was on earth, Jesus was saying, but the Holy Spirit, he will always be with you. And he says, I will send him to you. And he says, he will convict the world of sin because they do not believe in me, of righteousness because I go to my Father, and you see me no more, and judgment because the ruler of the world is judged. The judgment has already happened on the cross. So it's sin, righteousness, and judgment the Holy Spirit convicts the world of. His, his job is, you and I, the parakletos, to come alongside us, to help us, to fill us, to indwell us as his people. But to those who are having that, he's showing them, hey, this is sin. This is wrong. The world is going to end. That's what got me. God pointing out my sin, me seeing that the world was going to end, that the world deserved judgment based on the things that was happening. And I went, I got to get on that boat. I got to get saved. And that wasn't because I was smart. It was because the Holy Spirit was convicting me of these things. The Holy Spirit was doing His work out of love to reach me. Matthew 5.13, Jesus says, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. That these things are the very last to happen before the Great Tribulation. That the church is going to lose its flavor. 
So what is God going to do with the church that's pointless? Lampstand will be removed. I mean, look at the world today. Look at how they foam at the mouth against the things that are true and right are of God. And I read even this morning about a guy in Florida who drove his car through a Republican voter, booth, voter registration booth, uh, you know, gave them obscene gestures and drove off. Basically, I don't know, I wasn't there so I didn't see it, but you could think that, you know, if someone was sitting in that booth, he didn't care if he hurt them or not or worse. Now, I'm not saying God is a Republican. He's not. But if you look at the things that are some of the pillars of Republican platforms, such as faith, family, marriage, life, being pro-life, these are not things that are espoused by the Democratic Party. In fact, the opposite. And look at them attacking them. They're raging. There was another kid at some university screaming and yelling at some young Republican group. And again, you know, I'm not saying Republicans get anything right. The Republicans do a ton of things wrong. I'm saying, as a whole, the party has these pillars that are Christian pillars that are of the Bible, and that's why I would vote towards them. Not because I care about their economic policy, but because I care about those things. The Democrats voted that way, I would vote Democrat, but they don't. That these kids raging, slash their throats, cut their throats, off with their heads. This is, if you guys study history and you look at communist revolutions, that's what they do. That's what, how uh, Russia, China, other nations became communists is through violent revolution. You don't think that's gonna happen here? They're ready. That's the same thing that's gonna happen in the world. It's gonna be this violent revolution, this violent enlightenment of we're free now, we're cutting off all these old chains of these things that have their basis in Christianity, where we get our morals from. Because God would tell us that we are important from conception and we shouldn't sin and that these things that they love to do are sin. But the worst thing is, I think, is that this last church age is totally swept up in it. The icy waters of the world have mixed in with the hot waters of the church to make something which I think Jesus puts it nicely by calling it lukewarm. That the church and the world have melded into this thing that's I mean, what are you quoting on Instagram? Are you quoting a scripture? Are you quoting some figure because it matches up with your political ideology? Is that really what we're supposed to be doing? Paul quotes different people from their culture on Mars Hill to make a point about the gospel not make a point about race or politics or anything else. Because if you're swept up and you're in agreement with the way the world is treating all these things, whether they seem right or not on the surface, you have to consider that, as we mentioned before, the whole world is under the sway of the wicked one and the spirit of the Antichrist. When the whole world agrees on globalism, climate change, gender identity, uh, the way the rich should pay the poor, all these things, and I don't want to make a blanket statement because I think each of these things are so complicated, we have to, we'd have to unpack them separately, and this isn't the core of this message, but the point I'm making is that 
You have the Spirit of God in you, do you not? The world does not have the Spirit of God, and the world has a unified spirit of Satan in it. And they're under the sway of that. So if you're going the same way with the world, and you're agreeing with the, the popular view of the world of the day, and the world is patting you on the back for the things you believe, and the world at large, you know, I mean, politics were kind of split down the middle, but have to consider. Are you cold? Are you hot? Or are we lukewarm? Let's read and let's let the word of God determine for us where we, where we sit and not our own justification or pointing fingers. Revelation chapter 3, verse 14, and we're going to read straight through to the end, verse 22. Jesus says to John, And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I'm rich and I become wealthy and have need of nothing. And do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten, therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him, and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the last word of Jesus specifically to the churches. And it said to the city, wasn't the first church that was listed, it was the last church that was listed. And I think the order that he gives them is important. That the city, uh, I'm going to read some uh, points from the commentary here, uh, which, uh, you know, if you go to Blue Letter Bible and go to this passage and look at David Guzik's commentary, this is what it says. It says, Laodicea was an important wealthy city with significant Jewish population, like other cities in the region. It was a center for Caesar worship. Remember, we talked about that. The Roman people began to worship their leaders. <laughs> uh, yeah. And they worshiped also, which is interesting, a healing god named Asclepios. And that there's a famous medical school connected with the temple. That their worship of Caesar, their worship of this god, Asclepios, and their medical knowledge were all linked together. They had... Socialistic healthcare. They had a worship system that was tied in with their healthcare and with what they believed about medicine. It says, after an earthquake devastated the region in AD 60, Laodicea refused imperial help to rebuild the city, successfully relying on their own resources. They didn't need outside help. They didn't accept the federal bailout. They didn't accept FEMA's help when they had a natural disaster. They said, we have enough money and we're going to do it ourselves. They didn't ask for it, and they, more than that, they didn't want it. Uh, they, it says that they were too rich to accept help from anyone. The city was so wealthy that they would, feel, they would feel like dragged down or dirty if they accepted help from other people. 
and this is not a common day in our age where it's hard to accept help from others. It's hard as a guy to accept help from someone else to admit that you're weak. You know, I ordered this carpet and I had to pick it up at Home Depot and the guy offered to help me and I wanted him to help me, but I felt bad about him coming out all the way out there. But I also knew, you know, this thing is heavy. I could drag it on there, but it'd be much better to have uh, his help and, uh, and he helped me out there. But they didn't want any help when they were in problem. They were, they were proud. It was also a noted commercial center, and some of its goods were exported all over the world. And I'm reading this because I think it really does highlight some of the things that Jesus says, and as we'll see in a minute, uh, that they prided itself on three things, financial wealth, an extensive textile industry, so they were like the fashion center, uh, but they also had a popular eye salve, which was exported around the world, which is interesting. Now, I'd love to know more about this eye salve and what it was, but... Whatever it was, it was for your eyes. It made your, you know, they, they invented clear eyes. I don't know. But they exported around the world. Uh, and this is actually interesting, too. It says, one of their problems was a poor water supply that made Laodicea vulnerable to attack through a siege. So if you remember, a city would have to get all its water. Uh, water would sometimes come from outside the city. So if you have a, a sieging army that's going to surround your city, well, if your water comes from outside the city, it's really easy. They just block off the river, start poisoning the water going in your city. And you'll surrender. Uh, so it says that uh, if an enemy army surrounded the city, they, uh, the Laodiceans had in, insufficient water supplies in the city, so they didn't have a good well system there. Uh, therefore, the leaders of Laodicea were always accommodating any potential enemy and always wanted to negotiate and compromise instead of a fight. Think about modern politics. We don't have wells in ourselves. Even in our country, we've exported our very foundation from the industrial revolution in the 1800s we've exported all that to other countries so we don't have industry strong enough in our nation to support ourselves which is why we started bringing oil and all these other things back so we're not reliant on enemy nations for our needs right we even look at like china though things with china why do we have to have a trade agreement with them well because so much stuff from our econ for our economy comes from them so we begin to make pacts with our enemies. We begin to compromise on our morals and let certain, you know, our, our, we have these close ties with Saudi Arabia and all these oil-rich nations that we wouldn't have any ties with otherwise. And we have plenty of oil if we could just tap it. But that's a whole other story. But that's what Laodicea was doing. He said, you know what? If you guys come and surround us, we're kind of doomed. So why don't we make a deal with you? You know, we'll stand on your side. We'll, we'll, we'll compromise our own needs and our own um, values just to make sure we have peace with you. Isn't that noble? Isn't that the political way? Let's just, oh, we can just compromise. We'll just political, we'll talk it out. And I get that. You don't want to just rush into war. But man, what are we, what are we sacrificing by talking too much instead of acting? Uh, but this is also interesting that the main water supply came on a six-mile aqueduct. So it was this six miles i mean it's amazing the roman architecture that they can move water the way they did uh you know they had plumbing and these giant sort of highways for water called aqueducts you can still see them today um above ground and they would leverage gravity to get water from one place to another but it said it, it came from so far and it came from a hot spring that by the time it arrived in laodicea it was lukewarm it was just uh, you know like you'd want to like put it in a jar in the shade and let it cool off uh, and it wasn't hot enough to want to like drink it or wash your face or get in. It. it was just this, ugh, you know, kind of, it's been sitting out of the sun all day. It's, it's gross water. Uh, and this church is also mentioned by Paul a couple places in scripture uh, in unfavorable ways. 
But Jesus is addressing this church in this city that is wealthy, that is smart, that is uh, an influence to the whole world in its day, which is, I mean, we think about, we take that for granted in our day and age. That's a big deal. We didn't have telecommunications. We didn't have internal combustion engines and spaceships and everything. You know, it was a big deal for them to influence the whole world. And he writes this to them, to the church that is in this place. He introduced himself as the amen, the so be it, the very will of God being done. This is it. Amen. We end our prayers with amen. And Jesus is saying, I am the amen. That God's will being done is wrapped up. It's finished. It's complete in me. And I get almost the sense that in the way he addresses the church that he's kind of saying, you guys think you've got it together. You guys think that, that you're the end. You know, the last church listed that somehow you're the most enlightened. You've got it all together but you don't like I'm the one who really is God's perfect will. Your compromise has not made you more spiritually enlightened. I think he's trying to communicate there. Maybe I'm reading into it, but he says he's the faithful and true witness that their witness was neither faithful or true, but his was, he says he's the beginning of the creation of God. And I wonder if their medical knowledge tied in with their worship of this false God, perhaps led them to believe other things about the creation of life. And we look at how we talk about, uh, babies in the womb and how they're not their own and they're just a clump of cells and it's not murder to kill them. Well, what does that all stem from? That stems from our worldview, our belief on what life is and how it happens and when it begins. And even then, it's obvious that it's that conception. That's the life. One minute you're pregnant, the next minute you're not. Why are you going to wait until they pop out? Why are you gonna, how can you arbitrarily define when you feel like it, it, it is or it isn't. That's what God says to them. I'm the beginning of the creation of God. That Jesus is not a created being, but as Colossians 1, 15 through 18, he says, he's the image of the invisible God. That if God is invisible to us, he's so powerful, he's so beyond our comprehension, that in some way he's boiled down into this image, this visage of Jesus, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities, powers. That Jesus set it all up from every molecule to every spiritual uh, level. That all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and him, in him all things consist. That Jesus holds all things together, the Bible says. That he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that he was also the first one to be raised from the dead to eternal life, not just like Lazarus who would rise again and die, but he was raised to spiritual life again. And that in all things, he may have the preeminence. And somehow the church has forgotten that they're to be reborn and resurrected. We've seen the church almost dead. We've seen this church that their lives look nothing different than the lives of those around them. And he says, your works, they're neither cold nor hot. Like whatever you're doing, it's whatever you are about, it's disgusting. It's pointless. It's polluted. This isn't like three bears and Goldilocks where Jesus says, you guys are too hot. You guys are too cold. And later to see you, you're just right. That's not what the lukewarm is. It's disgusting. And Jesus says, I wish you were one or the other. Like, don't be on the fence. Don't sit on the fence. Be Republican. Be Democrat. Don't just sit there and make up your mind at the last minute, so to speak. 
He says, just be one or the other, because if you're one or the other, I can have a rational argument with you. I can talk to you about these things and come back and forth. But when you're wishy-washy, you know, I watched this video the other day about this guy interviewing women at uh, some women's march about trying to define what a woman was, and they had no idea how to answer it. Just utter confusion amongst all of them, and some of these answers were so recursive, like it's not even an answer. And that's what he's saying to this church here, just make up your mind one way or the other and we can talk. Whether you agree with me or disagree with me, that's fine, but you can't do both. You can't just be this wishy-washy middle. And this is the harshest words here. He says, I will vomit you out of my mouth. That God, the one that they claim to worship, claim to know, have their name on the wall, says, I will spew you, the word is spew in Greek, out of my mouth. Like, not this like little like, you know, you got a little indigestion, but this disgusting, spit out, disgusting, like, worst stomach flu you can imagine out of his mouth. Think of Jesus flipping the tables or John calling the religious leaders a brood of vipers. Jesus telling his church, the one who's supposed to be his bride, right before he comes back, the last church age, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. Don't even think we're getting married. I'm not even, don't even want to be, can't even be close to you because it's so disgusting. That's Jesus talking to the church. That's not my words, that's his words. He says, you have worldly wealth, but you are spiritually poor. Do they not remember in Matthew 6, Jesus said to them, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. For where your treasure is, there also will your heart be. So where is Laodicea's heart? It's not in heaven. Maybe they think it's in heaven. Maybe they want it to be in heaven. But in reality, it's on earth. It's in the things of the world. It's in their wealth, their power, their intelligence, and their influence. And how they think that they're so enlightened that they can see. Matthew 6, 24 says, No one can serve two masters. You'd be loyal to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and riches or worldly wealth. Romans 8, 5 through 8. Uh, those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace, because the carnal mind is an enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God that this church was a fleshly church. They're about what they felt, what they liked, what sounded good, what looked good, what paid good. First Timothy 6.6 6 says, Godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing to this world, and certainly can carry nothing else. And goes on and says, For those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, the snare, and many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But you, O man or woman of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness and godliness. And it goes on. That's my uh, Cliff Notes version. But sincerely, they had pierced themselves through. They had chosen everything in the world and decided to pierce themselves with that instead of allowing the, the tough things of God and of the Spirit to cut them through. He says, I counsel you to buy gold refined in fire. You know, I've been looking into to getting stocks and you want to make money market investments. It's good to have a counselor or anything you want to do in life. It's good to get a counsel when you buy a house or buy a car or anything else. And Jesus says, I'm counseling you. You guys have all these great advisors for what to do with your worldly things, but you haven't sought my advice for the spiritual things. 
And I can get him saying that to a group of unbelievers. I mean, that's kind of what an unbeliever is. They just believe anything but what God tells them, right? And they need to come to that. But this is the church. They haven't received the counsel of God. Paul says receive the entire counsel of God, the whole scriptures. This church doesn't look to the scripture for their answers. It doesn't look to the scripture and what it really says for their motivation. And God says, I'm going to give you real gold. You want gold? You want to be rich? I'll give you the real riches. I'll make you rich in heaven. This church is about luxury. And what's luxury? Not experiencing hardship. Even when you open the handle on a car door, that would be this satisfying metal and shine and clean and clunk. And the leather would be nice and shiny. It would cost more than a house for this car because this car is so luxurious that it's such a joy and a pleasure physically to be in. And that's what this church is after. Somehow believing they've achieved something by not having to go through the hard things that the other churches who are righteous went through. We're not persecuted, so we're doing everything right. We've got all our bills paid, so we're in a better place than you. Come on, brother. Health, wealth, prosperity. We're healthy. We're wealthy. We're wise. Come to us for all your answers because we've obviously got to figure out the Bible. God doesn't want you poor. God doesn't expect you shouldn't be sick. There's something wrong with you. Come take our medicine. Come get vaccinated with the Laodicean spirituality. Jesus says white garments. You know, the city was a place about fancy clothes, about making clothes, about fashion. And I'm sure that uh, uh, the people there had the fanciest clothes. They had the money to buy that $400 sweatshirt made out of $3 worth of cotton. But it had the right tag in it, so they had to have it. Oh, it's luxurious. Ooh, this is, isn't this great? But Jesus says, you have not relied on my blood and my righteousness to cover you, that you're naked. He says, I don't want your nakedness to be revealed. Come to me. He's, this message is to the church. It's not to the world. God didn't tell John to put a billboard up in the city and tell everyone that this church was a failure. He said, repent that I might cover you, that your shame may not be revealed. Yeah. Like that, all this shame that you have, I want to cover it up. I want to get rid of it. But that's only going to happen if you put on my robes, on my white garments that are washed in my blood. Not washed in your new fabric softener or your, your um, uh, detergent, but washed in the holy things of God. That even Adam and Eve had the sense to cover themselves. And they even let God cover them better. But this church thought they had it all covered because they had all their physical needs met. They confused the tangible provision for spiritual covering. That they figured they had it all spiritually figured out because they had it all physically figured out. And that's, that's a shame. It's a shame for the church of all people not to have God's garments on them. We're supposed to. We're not supposed to be some spiritual nudist colony. We're supposed to be covered in God's garments. Uh, for homework, turn to Ephesians 4, 17 through 32. Ephesians 4, 17 through 32. But Jesus says, I want to give you eye salve that you may see. That you are blind as a church. That this city who is famous for making medicine for your eyes couldn't see themselves. The city that helped the world see was blind itself. And isn't that the ultimate hypocrisy to think you've got it all together and try and help someone else? America exports all sorts of technology. We even try to export, quote-unquote, democracy. We've exported Christianity to the world. But we ourselves have lost our technological edge. 
have lost our ability to produce on our own. Our republic has devolved into democracy and is quickly becoming mob rule while we yet try and bring this democracy that is failing, that we can't, it's only failing because we're not taking care of it, but trying to bring it somewhere else. And our Christianity is lukewarm at best, while the places that our missionaries have gone to are thriving, like China and churches in Africa and elsewhere. Like Jesus in Matthew 15 talks about the Pharisees. He says, leave them alone. They're blind leaders of the blind. And the blind leads the blind. Both will fall into the ditch. Um, he says, those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart. And they defile a man. Not what goes in. Not what you eat. And this is not our day and age to say, what you're eating is spiritually defiling you. Maybe if you eat Twinkies all day, you're not going to be physically healthy. But you're not really spiritually defiled, guys. That's what Jesus is saying there. Not wise, not smart, but you're not some spiritual sinner because you eat one thing, or you're not some spiritual righteous person because you don't eat it. The church is caught up in that these days. Of all things to be caught up in. And we do love food, right? Uh, but what I love here is that God loves this church. He says, if I didn't love you, I wouldn't rebuke you. Uh, he says, as many as I love, in verse 19, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. I'm loving you. I'm telling you these harsh things. I'm going to vomit you out of your mouth because I don't want to. I want to taste you. I want, to be, I want it to be sweet. I want to have this fellowship with you. I want you to sit with me in heaven. But it's not going to happen if you guys continue on this path. Ecclesiastes 7.5 and Proverbs 15.31 talk about how it's better to hear the rebuke of the wise uh, here the rebukes of life will abide among the wise. That Jesus says to be zealous and repent. That these people were not on fire for the things of God. Maybe they never were. And they needed to repent. But that's all it would take. All this church had to do was repent and say, God, you know what? You're right. This cuts us to the heart. We do need to buy gold refined in the fire from you. We do need to change our clothes. We do need to, to, to give up pursuing the world and start pursuing you. And to be zealous about it. To live for it. To be on fire for God. That's all it would take. Didn't take money. Wouldn't take fame. Doesn't take a credit card to ride this train. In the words of Huey Lewis. They just had to love God again. They had to be on fire for him and care about him. This word zelu, where we get zealous, means to burn with zeal. Or to be heated or to boil with envy, hatred, or anger. This, this church did not hate the things of the world. They love the things of the world. We're not, to, we're not to love the things of the world, guys. Not that you can't enjoy nice clothes or have a nice car or have nice things. If God blesses you with them, but I have to wonder how many of us have these things because we sacrifice something else to get them. It says the lukewarm church is to relight their spiritual burner. They've gone cold. You know, if you wake up, uh, kind of woke up a couple, I guess it was a month or two ago, we had a power outage, woke up, it was cold, had to go get the generator out and get the fire lit again because we don't have uh, wood heat, we have uh, propane. And that's what God's saying to them. Like, look, you're, you, it's gone out. It's not icy in here yet, but it's going to be. Just go light, relight the fire. That's all it's going to take. And I'm, I'm, this isn't verbatim, but the magician Penn from Penn Teller says, if Christians really believed in hell that it would affect every aspect of their lives. I think that's why part of why he's not a believer is because he looks around at the Christians and goes, you guys are all lukewarm. You tell me you believe in heaven and hell, 
You don't really live like it. Your life hasn't changed. You don't tell people about it. You don't give up the things that you say are bad. But man, when the world rebukes you, maybe they've got something right. That happened to me right before I got get saved. I was uh, with someone and telling them that they were going to go to hell for something that we were doing. And they're like, you just did it with me. And that was a smack in my face that got me on track. And I gave my life to the Lord a few days later. And we use this verse all the time as an evangelism verse. And that's good. About behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come into him and dine with him and he with me. It's true. If anyone hears Jesus' voice and he's knocking on the door of your heart and you let him in, you're going to have fellowship with God. But Jesus is speaking this to the church. The church. Jesus is saying, Hello, can I come into church? The door's locked. The blinds are shut. People keep walking by, but I'm not coming in. Let me in. I'm gonna, I, have, I have great food for you. I want to hang out with you. But the church treats him like the big bad wolf. Like he's huffing and puffing and blowing on the door. God wouldn't bring judgment. God wouldn't say that was wrong. God's a God of love. He is. And that's why he's rebuking you. And that's why judgment is coming. And they can't hear his voice. They can't hear his knocking. Because the, 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 the sound from their lavish party lifestyle is drowning him out. Talk about the rich young ruler in Matthew 10. He went up away sorrowful because Jesus said, you've done all the commandments right, but sell everything you have. And not that God was against the things he had, but he knew that those things were the God of this young man's life. And we don't know if he ever turned or not, but he went away sad. And again, having things and being rich, hear me out, is not wrong. If you have a Mercedes, you have a thousand acres that you have in life, it's not wrong. Job, Abraham, David, and Solomon were some of the richest ever to live. And the church also gets it wrong when it says that you must be in poverty to be uh, holy. And that's not the case. But for most of us, having those things, like Solomon with his wives, it wasn't the money, it wasn't the power that got to Solomon, it was the women. It got in the way and even caused spiritual decay. And that's the problem with this church. Jesus doesn't tell them to move out, quit their jobs. All he says is be zealous and repent. He doesn't say sell your stock, give all your money to the poor. He just says be zealous and repent. And maybe they would sell all their stock. Maybe they would give money to the poor. I don't know. But this lukewarmness must be overcome. Like Ashley sometimes has a, my wife has a cup of coffee that sits on the counter and gets colder and colder because she gets distracted taking care of the kids or something else. It's not going to get warmer on its own. She's got to go put it in a microwave. And that's what has to be overcome. We must spiritually go back to the microwave, go back to the oven and warm it up. Because it's not going to get hotter on its own. It's only going to get colder. Heat and warmth will radiate away. You've got the law of uh, entropy, right? Where things go from order to chaos. They go from warm to the state of neutral where uh, you know things are going to even out. And they even out in a lukewarm spot. And Jesus says, just like I have overcome, we must overcome with him. And I know that there, there had to be a temptation in Jesus' life before he went public ministry to stay in his job, to stay in his hometown, to take care of his mom, to keep doing his dad's business if that's what he was doing, to stay comfortable. But he left. 
for a place where no place to lay his head, where his family would call him crazy for stepping up to do what he was doing. And eventually he would be betrayed and crucified for doing the right thing. But that was the path of salvation for all of us. And Jesus offers a special reward to them to sit with Jesus, to rule and reign with him on his throne with him like he does with his father. That this is a very holy place. He's saying, I'm bringing you to the most holy place with me if you would just be zealous and repent. But this church already thinks it rules and reigns. The church already thinks it has a throne. It's covered in gold. But they have no place in heaven until they're zealous and repent. Their works are nothing. Their money has bought them no favor in heaven. And their medicine has brought no one salvation. They can heal the body, but they have no idea how to heal their soul. In fact, they put their soul in more jeopardy than it should have been. And they've put their reliance and trust in the one thing that they didn't have or think they needed. Jesus. They're the church. But they don't, Jesus isn't in their walls. Jesus isn't in their fellowship. Jesus isn't in their works. He's saying, you guys are lukewarm. I'm going to vomit you. The one thing that they're supposed to have, they don't have. They have all lot of, a whole lot of things that they don't need. Isn't that like us? They have tons of things and hold on to things we don't need. And the temptation is there to just hold on to it even though you have no use for it. All right. Yep. I'm going to throw out this old thing because... Yeah, I could see maybe using it one day, but in reality, I'm never going to use it. And it's just in the way and a burden. But it was the right way to go. It was a zealous way to go. Like Jesus said, because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are a few who find it. And that's true for the world. I think even in the church, it scares me. I think that the way is narrow and even the church misses it. Could be completely going the wrong way, like the Laodicean church. And think about this church being in the last days before the tribulation. They're lukewarm. They have everything they think they need except for the fire of God. The world they live in, this last day's church, is even darker than any other day in any other period. It's more hostile than any other period in history. And anything that would restrain the world from living its best life now. And so the church is compromising over and over to, to continue doing what they're doing, to keep their jobs, to keep their influence, to keep their wealth, to keep their friends. And they think they've got their best life now, and they don't. Because it's so often that God calls us out of our comfort, calls us out of our luxury to leave our job, to risk our bank account, to spend all our savings to get where he needs us to go, to leave a place you've lived forever, right, Abraham? And to change your retirement plans. And you know what? Maybe not even worry about retirement. Maybe live in such a way where you're expecting to be raptured or knowing and expecting and trusting that God's going to take care of you no matter what it looks like. And like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego might say, you know what? Even if God doesn't provide for us in our retirement, I'll still follow him. Huh? No, that's not what they said. They said fire in the furnace. But we can't even go through life worrying about what we're going to be doing in 20 years. In fact, these things may be absolutely necessary for the lukewarm church to actually go to heaven. I'm not saying they need to work for their salvation, but they just need to be saved. They need to show that the salvation has any meaning to them, that they may not truly be Christians at all, and they may be it in name only, that it's cultural, it's a club, it's a seeker-friendly place with life advice, platitudes, Coaching, mentoring, clubs. But what about worship? What about letting the Holy Spirit minister and use His gifts in the people? How about le learning the Word of God 
as opposed to the word of some author? How about actually living it out and letting it turn your world upside down? Or are you too worried about getting mud on your spiritual clothes? We think having that all our needs met, money in the bank, nice things, being well off is a sign of spiritual success. And again, it may be David, God blessed him, Job, all these other people. But that's really sort of the exception to the rule. Because these things come at what cost? What things have we pierced ourselves through spiritually? What part of our family has been sacrificed in our own soul so we can have a little more money in the bank? We have a little bit nicer car. We have a little more influence and a, and, a, and a more prestigious career. Couldn't we have just left and followed God when we were young and said, you know what, I don't need that degree. I don't need that relationship. I don't need that paycheck. Because was the fire put out along the way somewhere? Was it always out? The good news is is that Jesus says it can be rekindled. If you're just zealous and repent, that fire will come right back up. If you just poke that fire, give it a little oxygen, it's going to be warm again. It's going to be hot. It's going to be roaring before you know it and consuming everything in your life. That's bad. Jesus says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Be zealous and repent. God, we thank you for your word. We pray that you'd fill us with your zeal and your fire by your Spirit and not our own works. We pray for the church in these last days that the church would be zealous and repent and quit compromising and that we'd all be willing to stand up for our faith despite the the rising flood tides of the world and the spirit of the Antichrist. Come soon, we pray. And uh, God, minister to the world as only you can through your body, through your people, the church. In Jesus' name, amen. May God bless you, keep you, his face shine upon you. And may he come back soon. There is a vineyard of the Lord. There is a vineyard for our soul. With all our troubles left behind the door, we drink first light until the door.